Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I do hope that you do, if you don't, uh, we've got pew Bibles that are for your use in the lobby. If you don't have one at home, that is our gift to you. Please take that home. But if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking in the second half of the second chapter of Acts. In our story of, in the storyline of Acts, we're only 10 days in. Jesus, uh, the, the story of Acts picks up as Jesus is at the tail end of his post-resurrection appearances to the apostles, which occurred over 40 days. And at the end of that, he hands them a baton. He gives them their mission. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And then he ascends back to the Father. But he tells them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait there in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Speaking of the Holy Spirit that he would pour out on them at Pentecost to empower them to engage in that mission and run that race. And so they do that. Go back to Jerusalem and 10 days later, Pentecost happens. And the people that are gathered there on the streets of Jerusalem during the Feast of Weeks, they hear the disciples, this group of about 120 early followers of Jesus Christ, whom the Holy Spirit had been poured out on. They, they hear them speaking the mighty works of God in their own language. And they ask, what does this mean? To which Peter stands up and responds with this Pentecostal sermon that we find in Acts chapter 2. And so the people are perplexed. They ask, what does this mean? And Peter stands up and replies in this sermon. Last week we looked at the first part of this sermon where Peter explains that this mission that I've given to you is for the nations and that every believer is to engage in this mission and that this mission is a it, it itself, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for this mission as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The first part of the sermon had a bit of a defensive tone to it. As Peter says, they're not drunk, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not something new. This is something that was promised in the Hebrew Scriptures themselves. But now, Peter pivots in his sermon, beginning with our text this morning in verse 22 of chapter 2. And he goes on the offensive. Now he begins to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And he accuses his hearers of being the ones who crucified Christ. And he talks about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what all of that means for them. What's recorded for us in this most of the second half of chapter 2 is not only the first Christian sermon of the church, but it is the first Christ-exalting sermon. It is the first gospel-proclaiming sermon that we have in Scripture, at least one that is not preached by Jesus himself. It's preached by the church. Harvest of souls, as 3,000 people on the streets of Jerusalem are converted to Jesus and become worshipers and followers of Christ. So what's going to be the takeaway from this passage of Scripture? Well, for Theophilus, to whom Luke is writing this, and to the original readers of the book of Acts, what they would take away from this is that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, that he had ascended back to the Father, and that he is at this moment seated at the right hand of God in glory, and that he will one day return again to judge the living and the dead. Furthermore, for the hearers of Peter's sermon there in Jerusalem, who, who were the observers of all that was happening there on the streets of Jerusalem in, at Pentecost, the implication for them was that this Christ whom they crucified is in fact the Lord, that he is the Messiah, he is the, the promised Davidic son who would one day rule with a rod of iron. And so it's only natural that in our text this morning, they would be overcome with shame and guilt and conviction 
at the reality of their deserved punishment and plead with Peter and the other apostles, what must we do? What must we do to to escape this deserved judgment? For us too today, in Peter's sermon and walking through this today, we will be reminded of both the divinity and the humanity of Christ We will be reminded of both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the crucifixion of Christ. But most importantly, we will be reminded that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and in our own bodies as followers of Jesus Christ means that Jesus is Lord that he rose from the dead, is seated at God's right hand right now, and will one day come back just as he promised to judge the living and the dead. For some of us here this morning, this is going to be God's call on you to finally and forever place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue from this very same deserved judgment. And if that's you, I pray that by God's grace, you would be born again this morning, that you would be born of the Spirit, that by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and turning from your sin, that this same Holy Spirit of God would come to reside in you and give you new life and make you one of His children. But for others here this morning, whom God has already saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Peter's sermon in this passage should help us in our worship, in our sanctification, and in our mission. And so those are the three applications that as followers of Jesus, I hope that we walk away from this morning from this passage. That our worship of the exalted Christ would be renewed as we hear Peter exalt the living Christ. And that our sanctification, our growing in Christ would be prodded and promoted as we consider the reality of who he is and what that means as we seek to be sustained by grace each day. And that our mission, our mission, to be witnesses of this Christ in our Jerusalem, our Judea, and our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, might find a good and real example in the Apostle Peter himself. So let's read Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, and we'll go through to verse 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having convinced, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him 
both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would speak to us. We are so thankful for this book that we hold in our hands, and we know it to not just be any book, but your very breath, your spirit-inspired revelation to us. Oh, God, thank you so much. We ask that you would speak to us from it, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend to the reading and exhorting from your word, not just to give us understanding, but to change our lives. We ask, Father, that for the glory of Jesus, your Holy Spirit might bring conviction on those who are here in this room who have never placed their faith in Christ alone. Father, as these 3,000 are called to faith in Christ, we ask for your glory that you would call sinners to yourself this morning to come to you repenting of sins and trusting in Christ. We ask nothing less, Father, that you would cause new life in those who are far from you this morning. And Father, in us who know you by your sovereign grace, I pray that you might elicit in us such a heart of worship that we would live and love you and exalt you as you deserve. Thank you for your word, Father. This is for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Peter's preaching his sermon, we really kind of cut into the middle of this sermon today. And having already preached about the pouring out of God's Spirit on mankind being a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Peter now makes this pivot to begin to preach about Christ. And he does so by preaching about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And as we go throughout the book of Acts, this is a common theme that we will see as the apostles preach. They preach the gospel by preaching about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection because the gospel is the story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what it means to us. So what does Peter say about Jesus' life? He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, we know to be a town some 55 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a town that was held in very low esteem. Not much good came from Nazareth in their eyes. It was a place of despisement and low esteem, which reminds us of the story of the calling of the first, first disciples. In John 1, as, John, as, as Jesus calls Peter to follow him, Peter goes and finds his friend Nathanael, and he says, we found the one of whom the law of Moses and the prophets speak about. It is Jesus of Nazareth. To which Nathanael responds, what good can come from Nazareth, right? It was a place of low esteem, but we're reminded of the prophet Isaiah who said that the Messiah was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
And so there was no effort on the part of Peter here as he preaches about Jesus' life to embellish his background. He's from lowly Nazareth. And he's just a man. Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man, he says. A man just like you. A man just like me. But he says that he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The miracles of Jesus, the primary reason for them was to give validation to his claim that he was the Son of God. His healing of diseases, his stopping of storms in the middle of the Sea of Galilee proved to validate that he was, in fact, as he claimed, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. Peter says, you saw him. He lived among you. He walked among you. You saw the things that he did. But then Peter turns to his death. And he does so both from man's perspective as well as from God's perspective. Peter tells us that the crucifixion of Jesus was both a, a, a result of God's sovereign plan as well as a result of man's rebellious sin. Look at verse 24. Excuse me, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who is to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus, God or man? It's both, right? We, we see both here, both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Jesus was delivered up, referring to his cross, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That phrase, definite plan, the New American, New American Standard says the predetermined plan. The NIV says the, the deliberate plan. The King James calls it uh, that he was delivered up according to the, to the determinate counsel. The, the word definite literally means the, the marked out boundaries. The, the, the boundaries that are marked out beforehand. And so this is God's plan. It's his blueprint, the, the boundaries of which were marked out in eternity past. And so Jesus being delivered up to the cross was according to this blueprint of God's, God's plan that was marked out before the time began. And furthermore, it's not just according to the plan, but it was according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, the knowledge of God about this beforehand. Note this, that God's sovereignty is always in accordance with his foreknowledge. And his foreknowledge is always in accordance with his sovereign plan. God's foreknowledge biblically does not refer to something that God doesn't want to happen, but he's powerless to stop it. That's man's foreknowledge. That, that's our limited foreknowledge, right? Right? We've all been there before where we're driving down the highway and we see someone ahead of us merging over into the next lane and there's a car there. They don't see them, but they're merging. We know what's going to happen. We see it. We, we, we know what's going to happen, but we're powerless to do anything about it, right? And by the way, our foreknowledge is woefully imperfect, right? Because maybe at the last, maybe at the last second, the, the guy does look over and see the car that's in that lane and pulls back. Or maybe the guy that's in the lane hits his brake and allows him to merge in, avoiding an accident. Our foreknowledge is woefully imperfect. But not only is God's foreknowledge flawless and perfect, but it is in accord with his sovereign plan. We cannot separate the two. And so Peter says that Jesus was delivered up not just according to God's foreknowledge, that, that he just knew that Jesus was going to die on the cross ahead of time, but also and incredibly according to his definite and sovereign plan. Like the prophet Isaiah writes in those familiar words prophesying about the crucifixion of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and listen to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, speaking of Yahweh, has put him speaking of his son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was God's plan. It was God's definite will, predetermined plan for his son to be crushed in order to redeem sinners like us back to himself through faith and repentance. But Peter also says in verse 23 that this Jesus delivered a cup up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does he say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so it was both according to God's sovereign plan, but it was also a result of man's rebellious sin against God. God was sovereign over the death of his son, but did that mean that man was not responsible? Of course not. Man absolutely was responsible for the death of Christ. You crucified and killed this Jesus by the hands of lawless men. So Peter preaches about the life of Jesus. He preaches about the death of Jesus for sinners like us. And then he preaches about the resurrection of Jesus, and this is going to carry him through to the very end of his sermon. Look what he says in verse 24 God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus had lived, Jesus had died in their place, and Jesus had risen from the dead. And that makes all the difference. In my study of the book of Acts, in looking at all of the sermons that we'll see over the next year that the apostles preach, this is a common theme in every single one of them. The apostles preach Christ crucified and risen. Every single one of the sermons that the apostles will preach in the book of Acts, every single sermon that we see in the church, in the book of Acts, they will preach Christ crucified. And in all but one, it will preach the resurrection of Christ. The only exception being the sermon by Stephen in the book of in Acts chapter 7, where he's stoned as a result of that sermon. And even then, as he looks up into heaven, what does he see? He sees Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he cries out as the rocks are being thrown at him. And his impending death is right there. What does he cry out? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Testifying to the resurrection of Christ. When we proclaim the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, and your conversations with your neighbors and your friends and those in your workplace. We, we know to, to preach Christ crucified. But do we also preach Christ risen from the dead? We know to keep a focus on the cross, but do we likewise hold up the empty tomb? Friend, this is why Easter Sunday is such a big deal for us. The price was paid in full on Friday night, but on Sunday, that said paid in full, which was an empty tomb, Christ had indeed risen. Never, church, never underestimate the importance of proclaiming that Christ is risen from the dead. And never undervalue the, the impact that the hope of the resurrection might have on a lost person who fears death and fears that which follows death, which is judgment. The hope of the resurrection is real. Peter extends his discussion of the resurrection here to include both 
Old Testament testimony as to the resurrection, as well as apostolic testimony to the resurrection. First, the Old Testament testimony is from Psalm 16, as he quotes, beginning in verse 25. Peter says, for David says concerning him. Who's him? What's Christ? So, so David is speaking here concerning Christ, and he quotes from Psalm 16. And so that tells us that not only is, is David writing a messianic psalm, a psalm that points to Christ, but David's writing this as a prototype of Christ himself. So that when he says there, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be, sh be shaken the pronouns I and me and my do not refer primarily to David in that psalm, but they refer to Christ. And so Christ is speaking here. So let, let's read Peter's quotation of Psalm 16 here with that interpretive key, that Christ is speaking in Psalm 16 through David of himself. So what does he say? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. In other words, the Lord, Father, is at Jesus' side as he goes to the cross in order that he might not be shaken or deterred from his mission. Therefore, my heart, Jesus says, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will hope, will dwell in hope. For you, Father, will not abandon my soul, that is Jesus' soul, to Hades. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's speaking of Jesus. And then if there was any doubt as to what all of that meant, Peter explains that Old Testament quotation by saying in verse 29 and following, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You see, according to Jewish tradition, the body after death did not see corruption, according to Jewish tradition, until the fourth day. But Jesus' body was gone, as we know, by the third day. It didn't see corruption. But not so with David. Peter says the greatest king has ever lived of Israel has died. And he's buried in a tomb. And you can go see it today, guys. He's telling the people there in Jerusalem, you can go right out, right, right beyond the city gates. And you can see the tomb of David. And not only is his body still there, but you better believe his flesh has seen corruption. And so David could not have been writing Psalm 16 about himself, promising that the Lord would never let his flesh see corruption. Instead, he was writing about the Christ to come. Look at verses 30 and 31. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So in using, here's what's happening, in using this reference to Psalm 16 here and showing that, that it was the Messiah of whom David wrote, Peter is telling us that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures themselves, give testimony to the resurrection of the one who would come as Messiah. They were giving testimony to the resurrection of the anointed one. But then there's also apostolic testimony. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. I love the boldness and courage of the Apostle Peter in this sermon at Pentecost, don't you? Not only does he stand up and accuse his hearers of crucifying Jesus, the Christ, but he stands up here with the eleven and he says, we are all witnesses that this Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. 
And we, and we know from, from church history that, that every single one of these guys, except for the Apostle John, were killed because they refused to ever recant their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead, had walked with them, had talked with them, had eaten, eaten meals with them. They saw him with their own eyes and they were put to death because they would never recant their belief in that. We saw him, guys. We're witnesses that he's alive. He walked with us and he talked with us. I just wonder, what, what would have been different? Imagine how Pentecost would have been different if the Holy Spirit had not come. What would have been different about Peter's sermon if he had had the guts to stand up? What would have been different about the, the, the harvest of souls instead of 3,000 souls being added to their number, perhaps their number of just 120 would have dwindled even more. But that's not what happened because the Spirit did come. And Peter stands up and says, we are witnesses that Jesus is alive. And then Peter uses this opportunity of speaking about the resurrection of Jesus to drive home his main point of this sermon, which is this. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means not only has Jesus risen from the dead. It means that he's the Christ. It means that he's Messiah. It means that he's ascended back to the Father. It means that he's sitting at God's right hand and he's coming back as he promised. Look at verses 33 and following to see where I get this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So there's his ascension. He not just rose from the dead, he ascended back to the Father He's exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, remember he promised to clothe them with power from on high. God promised to give to Jesus his Holy Spirit. And then Jesus poured out that Spirit. But not only did he do that, he ascended to the Father. He's seated at his right hand. Verse 33 continues. He gave him the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, and then there's this quote from Psalm 110, which we looked at just a few weeks ago, another messianic psalm. David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, or from the original Hebrew from Psalm 110, the Yahweh, the Jehovah, says to my Adonai, my Lord, David says, Yahweh says to David's Lord. Who's David's Lord? It's Christ. So Yahweh says to Jesus, says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, when the people in Jerusalem there at Pentecost, they, they, they see and they hear these Christ followers proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own language. And they ask in verse 13, what does this mean? Peter now says that the culmination of his sermon, it means that Jesus is Lord. It means that he is the Christ. It means that he went back to the Father. It means that the Father gave him that which the Father promised to give him, the Holy Spirit. It means that Jesus then poured out his Holy Spirit on his followers. And friends, that, that is what you're seeing and hearing here in Jerusalem. It means that Jesus has risen. It means that he's gone back to the Father. It means that he's seated at this very moment at the right hand of God in glory. And it means that he's waiting for just the right moment to return, to judge sin, and to make all things new. And then Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Imagine hearing that. Imagine being in the crowd in Jerusalem. 
you've gathered there as a good and faithful Jew from Antioch or wherever you were dispersed to. You've come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks of Pentecost. And you hear all this people who are proclaiming the works of God in your own native tongue. And Peter explains what's happening is what was foretold by the prophets. This Christ whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Imagine being there and realizing by God's mercy that this Jesus whom just seven weeks earlier you were also in Jerusalem for Passover and you were yelling for his crucifixion. You were standing with the crowd and jeering at him as he carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to Calvary. That we mocked him as he hung on a cross. Now come to find out this Jesus who was crucified is both Lord and Christ. Imagine the conviction, the guilt, and the shame. No wonder they responded as they did in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? phrase cut to the heart literally means pierced through like a like a big heavy thorn pierces through your 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 flesh but it was also often referred to the the pain of of the mind and the emotions and especially the the emotional pain of of sorrow and shame so you get the picture they were pierced through they were cut in their soul Emotionally, they were undone. They, they were distressed. They were sorrowful to the point of grief because of this news. That this Jesus, whom they had had a part in crucifying, is the Messiah. He's God. And so they turned to Peter and the rest of the apostles and begged them, what shall we do? What shall we do to escape what we deserve? Peter responds in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, our Western minds are prone to look at that and try to put together a formula, but a formulas don't work. But our Western minds look at that and think, okay, we want forgiveness of sins, so what do we need? Repentance plus water baptism, which is being referred to here. Repentance plus water baptism equals forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we go with that kind of rigid formula, we easily fall off into the heresy that the scholars call baptismal regeneration. That water baptism itself is salvific. Which we can say without the least bit of equivocation based on the rest of scripture is absolutely not the case. Baptism does not save you. It is a sign of your justification by faith. Biblically, we believe that faith precedes baptism. And that baptism is a sign of one's saving faith. But we don't find the word faith here in Acts 2.38. In Peter's response to the question, what should we do to escape this judgment? And so, where is faith in Peter's answer to the question, what shall we do? We've got a couple of options. Either it's embedded in the idea of repentance, or it's in the background of water baptism. And I think both are at play. First, the command to repent literally means to change your mind. About what? Well, about Christ, about, about this Jesus. To change your mind about who he is, to change your mind about, 
about his life and death and resurrection and its implication for us. Certainly this is what Peter's been talking to them about in this sermon. And this is why they are cut to the heart because they realize that this Jesus whom they had a part in crucifying is both Lord and Christ. I've said it many times before that the only saving response to the gospel is repentance and faith. And those are not two responses, it's one response. It's like two sides of one coin. You can't have saving faith without genuine repentance. You can't have saving faith if your mind, by the grace of God, is not changed about who Christ is, about your sin, about what you deserve because of your sin, about the effective nature of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and your hopeless condition apart from Him, unless your mind is changed about His right to be Lord over you instead of you being your own Lord, unless your mind, by the grace of God, is changed about these things, you cannot turn to Christ in faith. And conversely, you cannot change your mind about who Christ is without also having saving faith. Because who is it that you're going to turn to if you're going to turn from something else? It's like two sides of a coin. If you've got one side of the coin, you're going to have the other. And if you look on one side of your quarter and, and you don't see George Washington, it's not a quarter. Doesn't matter what's on the other side, it's not a quarter. Faith in Jesus Christ is embedded in genuine repentance. You can't have genuine repentance without it. And so when Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, that repentance assumes a faith that you turn to Christ as Lord. But we can also understand that Peter's statement here says that faith is in the background of this water baptism. Since, since baptism is symbolic of Faith in Christ, the call to be baptized, assumes that there is a faith for which it is symbolic. Similar to the Great Commission. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does he mean there? Does he mean go to Papua New Guinea and go to the Malayali tribe and just, and just baptize all those tribes people? Just go physically, just go take them one at a time and dunk them underwater? Of course not. It's not what Jesus meant. He meant take the gospel to them. Teach the gospel to them so that they might respond in repentance and faith and become disciples of Jesus and be baptized as a profession of that faith. Same thing here. Repent and be baptized as a sign of your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So whether it's embedded in the command to repent or whether it's in the background of the command to be baptized, faith is definitely here because we see it down in verse 41. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word, that's the result of faith. They received his word. They received Peter's news. They received the gospel that Peter was delivering to them. And they were baptized. And there were added to their number that day about 3,000 souls. But don't miss that Peter says that this is necessary for every one of you. Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. Who's included in that? Verse 39. He says, for the promise, what is the promise? It's the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. There's the nations again. Remember, the mission, the aim of the mission has been and always will be the nations. Promises for you and for your children and those who are far off. And then this group to whom this promise is given is described more definitely there at the end of verse 39. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we see again this interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Who killed Jesus? It was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. And it was a result of man's sin and rebellion against God. And so now... Who are the recipients of the promise of the forgiveness of sins? 
All those who repent and believe. And who are they? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you have repented and believed on Christ and trusted in Jesus as your only hope for rescue, you have done so because God has called you to himself. And all those whom God calls to himself will repent and believe. In this setting, 3,000 people repent and believe on Christ. Why? Because God called those 3,000 people to himself. And I can't help but wonder if maybe you are here this morning because God is calling you to himself. Maybe you've been in church all your life. Maybe this is the first time back in quite a while. Maybe you know all the answers. Maybe you've still got quite a few questions. Maybe you're a relatively good person, or maybe you've committed some really big sins, and you feel the weight of it on you. But perhaps this morning, the Lord has removed the scales from your eyes. And you see that this Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lord. He is God. And you recognize that to your shame, you've spurned him. You've rejected him. You've avoided him. You've sought to live life your own way and not his. Be your own Lord and not have him as your Lord. Live for your own glory, not his. And you see now that he was put to death for the sins of mankind. And that your sins, whether they be big or small, they're part of what led to him being nailed to the cross and dying. The Son of God, the King of Kings, not only humbled himself to the point of becoming a man, but dying on a cross to take away the punishment that you and I deserve because of our rebellion. This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. If you know this, if you believe this, then friend, perhaps the Lord is calling you to himself this morning at this very moment. Do you hear him speaking to you in your still small voice? Come to me, sinner. Come to me. I came to die for you. I love you. I sacrificed my life to rescue you. Will you keep trying to earn our Father's favor, favor? Or will you humble yourself and come to me? Trust in my life, my death, my resurrection as your only hope for rescue. I will give you new life in my spirit. I will forgive you of your sins and I will reconcile you to the Father and one day you'll be with me in paradise. Friend, if that's where you are this morning, I beg of you not to reject God's call. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone as your only hope. This Jesus who ascended is seated now at the right hand of God in glory. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ while you still can. And Christian, as I mentioned at the outset, as we have walked through now Peter's sermon here at Pentecost, for those of us whom God has already saved by grace through faith, this 
sermon of Peter's in this passage ought to help us with our worship, our sanctification, and our mission. And so it's my prayer that the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord from the lips of the Apostle Peter might renew our exaltation of Christ with our life as we seek to live with a heart of worship before our God, Coram Deo, before the face of God. And I pray that as Peter preaches Christ crucified and risen for sinners, that we would be compelled as a result of that vision and our unworthiness, that we would be compelled to pursue godliness and personal holiness, that we would be compelled to fight against sin and indwelling sin in our own life with much greater fervor. Not, not as a, to make ourselves worthy of Jesus' sacrifice, but out of gratitude for the worthiness of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And if this morning there is indwelling sin in your life, that you would confess that before Him and repent of that sin and trust that your only hope to stand before a holy God is not based on your ability to say no to that sin, but it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, His righteousness by God's grace for His glory. His righteousness is so much greater than our sin. And then finally, I pray that Peter's bold and courageous sermon here at Pentecost would be a shining example to us, church, as we seek to fulfill our mission to be witnesses of his in our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Far be it from us to walk away from this precious part of your word that exalts your son so definitively and go back to living lives like before, mirroring the world around us, looking like the world around us. Instead of seeking to be representatives and ambassadors for Jesus, looking different, sounding different, and proclaiming this same gospel. And Father, we do pray for that person among us in this very room, young or old, who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would grant them repentance, genuine repentance. Oh God, cut them to the heart that they would realize that it is their sin that led to Jesus being nailed to a cross, that this Jesus whom they crucified is both Lord and Christ and grant them faith in Christ as their only hope. We ask, Father, that in the quietness of their heart that you would bring new life, that you would walk them across the line of faith, and remake for your glory a child of God, a worshiper of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.